After a year-long study of the Old Testament, uh, Christmas gave us an opportunity to transition to the new. And uh, for the last weeks, obviously, from Luke and from Matthew, we've been telling you the story of the birth of Christ. On Christmas Eve, we gathered and uh, read portions of that passage. You'll see a glimpse of that show up this morning. We are now taking the story of the Old Testament and bringing it forward. The New Testament was designed uh, by literary geniuses inspired by the Holy Spirit who do not intend for the New Testament to stand alone. The writers of the New Testament presuppose you have read the Old Testament and you understand what you've read. Does that make sense? Uh, If this was a series, uh, all of the big characters have been introduced in the first book, And if you just picked up the second book, you're missing the whole setup. You're missing the whole reason why the second book even exists. Uh, It's put together in your Bible to tell one big story. It's God's story of the beginning, updated through history, and what God's doing in the last period of history. And it tells the whole story of what God is doing here with His creation and with humanity. So now we're going to study the Gospels, obviously, for the next few weeks, uh, and we'll uh, move between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the four first books of the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus Christ. Uh, the big thing I want to present to you and in, 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 in get this seed planted in your mind is what story are the Gospel writers trying to tell? And if you had to sit down with a pen and a paper and write out a thesis sentence and say the Gospels are about this, you would probably write down, which most people from your tradition would probably write down, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling the story how Jesus died for our sins. That's probably what you would write as a thesis statement. And I want you to know that is not the thesis of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not the story they're telling. They're telling a different story. You say, well, how do you know, Pastor? Because that's not the story the Old Testament's telling. What story was the Old Testament telling for 40-something weeks when we studied it together? It's telling a story how God wants a people. He makes a covenant with those people. And he says, if you'll live in faith with me, then I'll bless you in this way. And how the people in the covenants with God never could keep their end of the covenant. And the world just kept getting in a mess and a bigger mess and a bigger mess and a bigger mess. And even God's people went after idols and they were punished multiple times because of that. And finally they came back from Siberia, from their banishment, from Babylon, after the invasion of five 90s, 580s, they came back and God said, okay, let's try again. And they began to build a temple and they began to build Jerusalem and they began to build the walls and they began to set up worship of God again. But the remarkable thing that's happening is there is no presence of God. There is no glory of God in the temple. There is no Ark of the Covenant. There is no, wow, she's got a lot to say this morning. Uh, there, there, there is no Ark of the Covenant there. There's no presence of God coming down. And it's almost like 
God's people are just going through the motions of coming to church. There's not really any power of God or presence of God. There's not really anything going on. It's almost like God is just like... And 400 years that happens. So what's the story the Old Testament's telling? God's going to send His King. Because remember, the people are saying, what good is it to serve God? What benefit is there to serve God? Nothing changes. It's always the same. So what was the message of those prophets that we studied, like Malachi and Zechariah? Here's what they said. No, God will suddenly come. And He'll destroy the wicked. But for those who are faithful, it'll be like the sunrise with righteousness and healing in its wings for God's people. No, God will send His messenger. God will suddenly come and He will set things to their rights. <coughs> That's the story the Old Testament's telling. God is going to send a king and He's going to make things right. You have to know that, otherwise you're going to think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling a different story. They're not telling a different story. They're actually telling the fulfillment of that story. They're actually about to say, now this is how it happened. God promised He would send His fixer, His king. Now, it's happened, and we're going to tell you how it happened. This is the story of how God became king. As we walk through the Gospels, let's use a timeline, and we'll let our little crown be the timeline. We're going to move through the birth and the childhood very quickly. Just take a week, we'll start podcasting this week. And uh, get the podcast going again. We'll move through the birth and childhood of Jesus very quickly. Preparing for ministry. His ministry in Galilee. Jesus is going to journey up to Jerusalem. He's going to be in Jerusalem for a period of time. His suffering and death. And His resurrection and ascension. And by the time we get to that, it should be Easter. How about that? It's going to take us a few weeks to go through the Gospels. There's lots of miracles. There's lots of things. There's sermons. There's lots of things happening in the Gospels. It's going to be a, a wild and wonderful ride. It'll be a little more familiar than the Old Testament prophets that we studied, surely, for you. But uh, let's see if we can find our, our, our uh, place and get our minds right about, okay, here's the story, and we're going to walk with Jesus through, through the timeline. Now, let's begin... And let's make sure that we've got Matthew's thesis right. We want to to just try to understand what Matthew is actually trying to say to us and why he's including what he's including in the story. Let me back up a week. Mary and Joseph had said yes to God. Uh, The angel appears, Mary, uh, we need your consent. This is what God wants to do. The power of the high shall overshadow thee. All this Ark of the Covenant terminology. The power of God's going to be present in you. And, and babes are going to leap in the, in the womb. And, and people are going to be filled with the Spirit because God is going to be in you. Uh, like the Ark of the Covenant, if you would. God's presence is going to be manifest upon you until you have that child. Because when you birth that child, this is going to be the new temple. This is the, the Son of God. It is a risk for her to say yes. It meant turning her world upside down. Joseph now presented with a dilemma uh, a few months later when Mary returns from Judah, obviously pregnant. Joseph knows it is not his child. Okay? He does not know if he's getting the right story from Mary. He wants to believe her. He loves her. The angel appears to him in a dream and said, Now before you take legal action, listen, she's telling you the truth. 
Matter of fact, God has chosen the two of you to be the parents of his own son. Now that's flooring to me. That's, that's dumbfounding to me. When I asked you a few weeks ago, who would you like to raise your kids? Mary and Joseph. Okay? That, that's the answer. And you say, how do you know that? Because that's who God chose to raise his. Uh, and I, so I would say you would want to find you a Mary and you'd want to find you a Joseph in your circle of friends or family. And the most, two most people nearest to that would be the people I'd put on my last will and testament and say, this is who I want to raise my children should anything happen to me. And God chose them and they said yes and it was risky and it was costly to say yes to God. Maybe you've never associated those two words with being a Christian. But I want you to know this is what Christianity is all about. It's about risk taking and you need to be prepared to take up your cross. It's costly. And, and if you don't believe so, keep journeying through the Gospels with me until you hear Jesus tell rich men to go give away that which they have and follow Him. Until you tell, hear Jesus say things like, uh, uh, seek not all of this stuff. God knows you need this stuff. He'll take care of you. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. This is the story that's being told, that being a follower of Christ is both risky and costly, and if you want to live an exciting and challenging life, then be a Christian. Then be a Christian. If you want to be, uh, you, you know, a difference maker, if you want to go against the flow, if you don't want to just be one of the, you know, nameless faces and numbers of a crowd, then be a follower of Jesus. Be a difference maker. Uh, it's not the easiest choice you can make for your life, but it's the most meaningful way for you to live your life. And now Joseph and Mary have, uh, they live in Nazareth, but now they've gone to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, uh, she's had the child, uh, Jesus. They stay there for at least two years. So they, Joseph had to shut down, he's an entrepreneur in Nazareth, he's a carpenter. He shut down the family business in Nazareth. He's reopened a business in Bethlehem. That's the only sense you can make of this. And he's, he has skills and he has a, uh, a, a skill set you can take with you. It's portable, you know. Uh, he works with his own hands. He's an artisan, a craftsman. And so in Bethlehem, he relaunches the business for two years. Uh, he's taking care of his little, little family of three. And then God's going to appear to them in a dream and say, Okay, Herod's on to you now. It's no longer safe for God's son to be in Bethlehem. Because, why? Well, because a rival king wants to kill Jesus. Why does a rival king want to kill Jesus? Because he's a rival king. The story's not about a cross as much as it's about a crown. This is how the story starts. And Matthew's setting up the whole story from the very beginning. He's included these wise men in his story. Now, the, the story he's going to tell you, we, we know the story of Christmas. Christmas is about God keeping a promise. He said he'd send a fixer. He said he'd send a king. said he'd send a Messiah. He sent him. And put the baby in Mary and Gabriel's announced it. The ba- we, we get that part of the story. Christmas is about God keeping his story. But I want to say this to you, and it's subtle, but it's definitely there. There is a subplot in the Christmas story. I mean, that's the big plot, but there's a subplot happening 
in the Christmas story. And that subplot is this. God has already accounted for all of your needs. Whatever you need in this life, God's already got it under control. Now, that's consistent with the teaching of the four Gospels. And it's buried right in the Christmas story that if God asks you to take a risk, He's there with you and He's going to see you through this thing. It means the resources you need. Now, it doesn't mean, when I say God's going to provide resources, I think sometimes people get crazy ideas. It certainly doesn't mean you, you just sit back and, and chill and never work. That, that's not consistent with Christianity. It means you do all you can do, but you know that God's the one who's going to take care of you. You know that God's the one that's going to open the opportunities, give you the connections, give you the wisdom, give you the know-how to do what it is that He's going to ask you to do. And He's going to see to it that you don't go hungry. Okay? Now, that's the subplot here. Because I think a lot of us in a rough economy and, and some of you are changing jobs right now and, and we're always trying to find like second and third uh, passive streams of income for our families and we're all trying to figure out how to do better and, and, and give more and be more involved in the kingdom of God and not be completely sucked dry by all of our you know, careers and vocations with, with time and energy. We all get that. We're all on the same page with that. The, the subplot here is that while God's doing the big thing, His people that are faithfully following Him, He's already accounted for all of your needs. And He's going to make provision for that, and that's part of what this morning's story does. God has already set the wheels in motion. Now, the first difficulty we have with the New Testament is simply this. We don't have a king. Never had one. Don't want one. Never will have one. Is that fair? You're Americans. You're, you're in a uh, republic, uh, uh, a representative republic is the form of government you have. And uh, you have a Senate, you have a people's house, and you have three branches of government and bicameral legislation. And you've got the best system in the world, uh, the most free system in the world, the most productive system in the world, the, the, the greatest system in the world. And I say that 100% confident, having seen the other systems of the world, I'll be flying into China in a week uh, into complete dysfunction as I go around the world, okay? Trust me, you don't want to be Trump flying into China. You don't want to be flying into the Middle East. You, you don't want to switch planes in Lebanon today. Uh, you say, why? Because it, even though things are broken in our own country, you're living in utopia right now. You're living in the best of the best. Try to fix it and make it better would be my advice to all of us which means be involved in, in, in everything you can be involved in. But our first difficulty as Americans is simply this. We don't have a king. Uh, haven't had one since, what, 1776? Uh, you know, uh, a king is not our thing. Uh, we are a bit fascinated to watch our cousins overseas, you know, uh, and, and now the, the king that uh, Great Britain has. And uh, we watch all of those things and watch the tell-all documentaries of the, you know, disgruntled royalty and all of this stuff. But as far as us wanting someone to tell us what to do, that just rubs against everything you are as a Texan. Uh, You don't want one individual, man or woman, dictating everything you can do in your life. We don't have a, we've never had, never experienced in your lifetime a single individual being able to dictate and tell you as a monarch, my word is law, you will do it just because I said to do it. 
Now that's our first difficulty because in the New Testament, they know all about kings. In the Old Testament, they know all about kings. Kings are their normal. They would be blown away by what you have today, the, the system of government you have. So the first thing you have to do when you get to the New Testament or the Bible in general is you have to start thinking about, you have to start thinking like people who get monarchy. You have to think like people who have a king or a queen. And you have to understand what a lord and a sovereign and a king is, and that they deified, the, like the Caesars were deified, and the Persian kings were deified. And not only were they king, they were regarded as a god, and their word was law. And if they said it, it happened. It didn't matter if it made sense. It didn't matter if it was right or wrong. They said it, their word was law, and that's it. There's no vote, there's no Congress, there's no Parliament. The king or queen just says it, and there it is, okay? Now that's something we don't experience, but it's something we have to get to understand uh, the biblical text. In a monarchy, the king is everything. His word is law. His decisions are final. He is not questioned. He does not need to win an election. He does not have to be elected in four years. He doesn't care what the press says. He rules by birthright. It's for life. It's a whole different thing than what we've experienced. Now, the story we're about to tell, the story that Matthew's about to tell, is the story of a king. It is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And in order to be a king, you've got to have three things at least. The right family, the right birth order, and some official recognition. Those th three things must be true. Even if you're of the right family, all three things have to be true for you to get the throne that is rightfully yours. The story you're about to tell is the story of how God became king. Let me move very quickly. First of all, we find a king's family when Matthew opens. The first 17 verses of Matthew present us with a genealogy. No doubt you've opened to, you said, this year I'm going to read my Bible more. And so you open to Matthew and you start reading and the first thing you're presented with is so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. That type of genealogy and your eyes are already beginning to glaze over and you're like, Please, can we get to something that matters? Here's why this is in your Bible. The genealogy links you to certain people. So if Matthew starts with the genealogy, he's clearly trying to... If Matthew starts with the genealogy and Matthew's telling the story of Jesus, he clearly intends to link Jesus to somebody from the past. Is that fair? And so right out of the gate, you're like, why is there a genealogy and why is this so boring? It's not boring because Matthew is saying to you, here it comes. Everything you've been reading for 4,000 years, everybody who understands the Old Testament is about to get this. And Matthew hits you right between the eyes with some of the most powerful genealogical evidence in history. Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah... God's fixer, God's king, the son of King David, and the son of Abraham. Now, if you didn't know what Matthew's thesis was, what story he's trying to tell, he's loading it up for you in verse number one. I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus, God's king, God's fixer, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That single statement links Jesus to the two great covenants of the Old Testament that God made. Uh, there's about four or five of them over there, but two of them that are so significant. The covenant that God made with Abraham 
and the covenant that God made with David. The covenant that God made with David was the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that God made to David and said, David, one of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel. I'm going to send my king, my fixer, to make this world right, and it's going to be one of your descendants. It's going to be one of your sons from your line, and that's the blessing I'm giving to, to your family. The, the covenant God made with Abraham in a world where no family would be faithful to God. Now, let me just pause my story right here and say this. When we start this new year and you're thinking, does it really matter if I'm faithful to God? Does it really matter if I press my kids to be faithful to God? Does it really matter if I challenge my spouse to get her act together or get his act together and and come on and let's serve God as a family? If you're wondering, does it matter, in a world where God couldn't find a faithful family to be his people, he came to Abraham and Sarah and said, I'd like to try again with you. Would you be my people? Then leave your place and follow me to a place I will show you. And they said, we don't have any children and we're old. And God said, small stuff. I can take care of that. Now, it wouldn't be small stuff to you, would it? But it's small stuff to God to take care of things like that. So here's what I want to challenge you right at the beginning of this message this morning is, it matters if you're faithful to God. And it matters because God couldn't find faithful people. And when he found them, he blessed them incredibly. I want to challenge you about you and your family being faithful. You've got a whole year now. Have you ever strung 52 weeks together in the house of God? Now, okay, let's give you two weeks for vacation. All right, let's give you four weeks. Okay? I want to just challenge you. I have some idea of what faithfulness looks like. I feel like the modern generation's idea of what faithfulness looks like is about once a month. About showing up about once a month. About reading a little Bible a couple of times a year. Maybe reading through one of the books. I'm just saying we can have different opinions about what faithfulness looks like. But I want you to know faithfulness matters to God. And whatever faithfulness would look like for you. Then you and God wrestle with that a little bit this morning. And before we're done here today, I'd like you just to bow your head and pray over that. And say, God, this year faithfulness for us looks like tithing maybe for the first time in our lives. Or faithfulness this year looks like for us maybe, you know, only missing five weeks this year. Or God, faithfulness for us looks like I'm going to make all of my small groups. Or I'm going to memorize some verses of Scripture, or whatever faithfulness looks like between you and God, I want you all to wrestle with that a little bit. Family matters, and I want you to tell your family it matters. And if you're the leader of a family, whether you're a matriarch or whether you're a patriarch, whether you're male or female, and you have influence in a family, and your family looks to you as a spiritual leader, maybe you need to verbally say to your family at some point, put your arms around them and say, it matters to me that you're faithful to God. And I think it matters to God's blessing on our family. And I think sometimes leaders of families just need to huddle their family together and love on them a little bit and say, it matters to me. Thank you, wife. Thank you, husband, that you go to church with me every Sunday. That matters to me and it matters to our kids. I think maybe some of those words need to be spoken and reaffirmed somewhere along the way because it's probably not the normal in today's world and it matters. So 
first thing Matthew's doing is he's saying that I want you to see a family and I want you to see it as an extension of Abraham's family and David's family and, and, and I want you to see what God's doing through, through the family. Now, we've studied the Old Testament. Here's what you know about the Old Testament. Families are dysfunctional. I mean, Samson is really messed up. And uh, I could just go through all the characters we studied in the Old Testament. Gideon's not a model of faith. Gideon's a model of, of faith at last. Faith through a lot of struggles because he didn't have faith. Trying God too much and testing God. And he wasn't supposed to put out the fleece and put out the fleece and put out the fleece and put out the fleece. He's supposed to obey God. That was the point of the story, and we, and we, and we kind of got that situated right. And, and some of the people we thought were bad characters are actually good characters, and the people we thought were heroes actually are kind of, kind of you know, Jacob's a rascal. You know, Joseph tormented his brothers till they wanted to kill him. Uh, he was a little toot, man, and uh, arrogant little jerk. And, uh, but, but you saw how all that played out, and, and, and what I'm saying to you is this. Dysfunctional families are not the exception, they're the rule. Because every one of you, in private conversations with me, would say something like, Pastor, if you knew my family, oh, we're, we're so dysfunctional. And I always say to you, and so is everybody else's family. So is mine, so is yours, and so is everybody you're sitting next to. We all have those people in our family, or we are those people in our family. Okay? Uh, this is the norm not the exception to the rule. And the Old Testament has laid it right out there and put everybody's sins visible where you can see them. Uh, thievery, conniving, con men, adultery, prostitution, rape, incest. It's all laid out in the Old Just right there, put before your eyes. And you're like, holy cow, how is God dealing with these people who they're calling themselves God's people? Here we are. Here we are. Heaven forbid somebody should write a book and put all of our sins out there where the world could see them. It would be more dramatic than the Old Testament. Okay? That's all I'm saying. We don't want that. And all of that's covered by the blood, and I get that. But what I want to say is, in the Old Testament, we learned that the families were dysfunctional. And so now Matthew's teed up this genealogy. Here's what he says. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, you should know who Rahab is, taught about her for a whole week, okay, and Boaz, you should know who he is, he's the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, you know who she is, and Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse's uh, David's father, King David's father. Now here's what Matthew is doing to you. Matthew is saying to you, God has through Abraham and David sent you a real Jew, a real Jewish king now, sent you a new king of Israel. But Matthew also wants you to be well aware that Jesus has Gentile relatives. So he has inserted into the genealogy four Gentiles. Now Matthew is so progressive, the genealogies of the Old Testament scarcely contain a woman's name. Women are considered in the unenlightened world just the property of men. Do whatever you want. They have no rights. And when the world starts becoming enlightened, things will change a lot. But Matthew breaks with tradition and in, with a lot of progressiveness, Matthew scripts in four women's names into the genealogy of Jesus to show you that Jesus not only has uh, Gentiles, but they are specific Gentile women woven into the story uh, of Jesus Christ. 
And after doing that to you, and you say, well, why would he do that? Because the story the New Testament's about to tell is that this thing God promised and he has done is not just for the Jews. Remember when Jesus was being born, they said he will be a light to lighten the Gentiles. Uh, And through Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is the whole point. Jesus isn't a savior for the Jews. He's a king for all of us who have never even had a king. We do in Jesus Christ, God's king. Now this is the story that's going to be another plot added on to this. So now God sent his king. It's also a king for the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are like, why do we have a Jewish king? Yes, you do. His name is Jesus, Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how do Gentiles get in? So Matthew's scripting the Gentiles in. A little foreshadowing of what's to come in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the expansion of the church in the book of Acts to Europe and to the Gentiles. Now the genealogy makes a turn in Matthew 1.6 and it makes a distinctive turn to be a king's genealogy, a royal genealogy in verse 6. Here's what it says. And Jesse, the father of, not just David, the father of King David. David was the father, father of Solomon, also a king, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, those words, King David, tells you that whatever follows is a king's family tree. He doesn't have to say King Solomon and so on because we know if you're born to a king, then you're rightful heir to the throne. You're the king's kids. Matthew wants you to understand you're looking at a king's genealogy. A genealogy that's for male and female. A genealogy that's for Jew and Gentile. A genealogy that's going to include a lot of rule followers and even more rule breakers. That's what Matthew wants you to know. You say, well, how do these rule breakers get into the story? Well, Jesus said in Mark chapter 3 verse 33, they asked him, hey, your mother and brother are outside waiting to get in the house. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked at those seated there in front of him and he said, here's my mother and my brother. Let me clarify, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister. How would you like to be kin to Jesus this morning? How would you like to be adopted into the family of God's king this morning? You say, well, that would be kind of a neat thing. You and I, well, let me ask you this. How would you like to be adopted into King Charles' family this afternoon? How would you like to King Charles to knock on your door and say, congratulations, out of the nine billion people on planet Earth, you've caught my eye, and these knuckleheads that want to leave the royalty, good for them. We're going to script them out, and we're going to write you in. Private jets and limos and castles and clothes and entourage and security and luxury will be your new life. Jesus is saying to you, you want to be a part of God's family? He who does the will of my Father gets in. You can get adopted into God's family. So now Matthew's very deliberate and I want you to see the devices he's employed. That's all I'm trying to show you this morning. As a writer of literature, Matthew has set you up so that you know you're reading the story of a king. Does he have the right genealogy? Tick. you got to have the right family to be a king. He's got the right family. Number two, king's birth order. You can be in the right family and never be crowned king. you got to be in the right birth order. Matthew 1.18. Now, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. 
His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, they've never had physical relationships, and Matthew is painstakingly painting you a picture of this. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly, just put her away, no legal action. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, wait a second, Joseph, son of David, those words get woven back in. The author is trying to... And the angel are trying to, and it's being written in a way that keeps linking Joseph to David. Family tree of a king. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage. Until she gave birth to a son. Now, there's no way to say this except to say this. There's some details recorded in this story that are very personal. (laughs) About what, when sexual activities are happening and when they're not. That's some very private and personal information is being shared with you. That a woman conceives a child supernaturally. Joseph goes ahead and follows through with the marriage. But he will not consummate the marriage until after the child has been delivered. That's a lot of private details. And that's more detail than you would be comfortable sharing with a public world or a biographer. Okay? And so you need to pause here and say, okay, Matthew's not wasting words on us. What, what is, how am I being... How am I being given the story? What is Matthew trying to say to me about by giving me this information? And by the way, where did Matthew get this information? These are private conversations between a man and his wife. And a private conversation between Joseph and an angel and Mary and an angel. So the only place I can figure that Matthew got this information is from Mary and Joseph. Clearly Matthew knew Mary. Joseph dies somewhere along the life of Jesus after Jesus is 12 years of age. We can cover that later this week in the podcast maybe. Somewhere Joseph disappears from the story and we're not given any more information. But clearly Matthew knows Mary. Because somebody firsthand, uh, I don't think I would be comfortable sharing my parents' uh, details like this. So I doubt if this came from Jesus. But I think it's Mary. I think Mary sat down with Matthew and Matthew said, okay, I want to be sure I get this right. Now, how did this thing go down? And what happened? And I think Mary's just laid it out for Matthew. And she's told him. Again, when, when Mary uh, delivers the baby, she's probably just a teenager. So she's not an old woman. Uh, when Matthew and these uh, biographers are on the scene, she's still got her mental capabilities. And she's still a young woman. And she's giving the details to Matthew so Matthew can give them to you. Joseph did not know Mary in a physical way until after Jesus was born. Why is that in the story? Because to be a king, the birth order has to be right. And the birth order matters here because of how the birth was orchestrated supernaturally. If you want to have a claim to being God's son, then you can't be Joseph's son. That's it. 
If you want to claim to being God's Messiah, God in a human body, then you can't be Bobby's son, <laughs> or Alan's son, or anybody else. You're going to have to be God's son. And so the story has come down to us in that way, that the biographers actually believed this about the virgin birth, and they have given us the story to make sure you know King's genealogy, King's birth order. This is a firstborn son of the lineage of David. These are children of David and Abraham having a baby, but the baby's really not Joseph's. It's being delivered through Mary, through the right tribes, but the child is God's son. He has not had any, he hasn't touched her. It's not Joseph's child. Number three, the king's recognition. Now, I can tell this story pretty quickly because this is a story that we get to this morning. We fast forward the story now two years, and Matthew presents us with a royal delegation. As I've told you over the past many years, even though the Christmas cards portray it this way, the wise men were not at the birth of Jesus. There is no biblical record of that, and that's not the story the Bible tells. It's the story that Hallmark tells on the Christmas cards, and therefore the church just adopted it. And so if we do a nativity, we'll have to have wise men come down and bow and give their treasures because everybody will miss them if they're not in the story. And we do some things, and you, you understand what I'm saying. If we set a nativity scene out in front of our house, or if you have one, you may have a nativity scene in their home for the holidays. Yeah, we have the wise men for sure. They got their gifts, and they're bowing before Jesus, and there's three of them. And the Bible doesn't say three, and it doesn't say they came to the birth of Christ. They come two years later, at least, okay? And that's the story, the actual story that Matthew's telling. And the big question this morning is, who are the wise men? And why has Matthew scripted them into the story? Now, you know why there's a genealogy, and you know why Matthew's talking about not knowing and knowing, and first, do you get that now? So why are the wise men in the story? If you're going to tell the story of how Jesus died on the cross, you would not need this in the story, but this is in the story, and that's probably not been the story that Matthew's telling. Matthew's telling the story of how God became king, and so there must be wise men in the opening of the story. (laughs) There must be. There have to be. In order for you to be king, then you have to be recognized as a king. In other words, until they inaugurate you, you're not really the president. I wonder what they call them, president-elect. You haven't been officially recognized yet. It hadn't happened. You have to have some type of coronation. We all knew Charles would be king. We all knew Charles would be king one day. But he wasn't called King Charles until he was King Charles. And he is King Charles now. And even now we're waiting for a big official ceremony where they'll have a a coronation ceremony for him. So the question rises, why has Matthew and only Matthew given us wise men? And who are the wise men and where do they come from and what's their role in the story? Now, quickly listen to this and let me tell you who they are. They are descendants of an ancient people who trace their origins back to to, well, before the time of Abraham. Now, you've gone all the way back to the book of Genesis in a timeline. And uh, for thousands of years, there was an ancient people who were advisors and rulers. You might call them magicians, stargazers, uh, politicians. And we know for sure that they went from at least the days of Abraham all the way until the days of the Roman Empire. And we know they lasted for thousands of years, these 
group of wise men providing political advice to kings. We know that because Matthew has recorded in chapter 2 now, first verse, And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of Herod the king, Magi, Magi come from the east to Jerusalem. Now, we think these are just like Christmas decoration parts of the story. This is the pivotal part of the story. This is the guts of the story. This isn't just trimmings. This is the thesis evidence of what Matthew is trying to say to you. Now, we've called them for all these, your whole lifetime, wise men. Who are your kids going to be in the play? We're dressed up as the wise men. Magi is the word in the modern Bibles. Wise men is the way it's translated in the older Bibles. Uh, The Greek word is actually magos. This is where we get the word wise men. Magos. And magos, if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, it means from magian or magian descent, the magi. Now, the problem is, it's not an English word, it's a Persian word, and since there's no word for magi in English, uh, you have to just transliterate it. There's no word baptism in English. They had to invent it. Uh, It's baptizo in the Greek, and they just transliterated it into English and made it baptism because it is what it is. Uh, We don't really have a word for this. If we did, you would say political advisors, cabinet, cabinet officials. Take a cabinet official, mix in three parts of Harry Potter and one part of of Star Watcher and throw in a little soothsayer and that's what that is, okay? With a lot of political advisor, pour it in again, okay? We don't really have it this way because we don't have kings, so we don't have wise men advisors like this. We have government cabinets and, and, and congresses and things like this. But, so the modern Bibles didn't try to translate it into wise men or politicians, sorcerers, slash. The new Bibles just transliterated the word, made it up an English word, and the new English word is this, magi. Uh, it's also where we get our word for magician, you know, because it's, it's a spinoff of this. So, wise men, magi, we're talking about the same thing. But the magi were a priestly tribe of people from the Medes. That's uh, like Iran, Iraq, uh, 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 east. And the magi had some sort of divination process where the magi could prognosticate the future by looking at the stars. Now, one culture can do this with chicken bones. One culture can do this by reading the tea leaves. Some culture can do this with tarot cards. Some cultures can do this with the stars. Okay? There's all kinds of black magic in the world. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just describing who the Magi were. They were a people who had a system, and somehow it worked, and they could prognosticate, they could read the signs... Like we would say, well, I can't read the tea leaves, or if you read the tea leaves, or I've read the tea leaves, or it's just a figure of speech. But it comes from these cultures where you're saying they could look at the stars. What's written in the stars? It's written in the stars. That's an idiom. What is written in the stars mean? It means it's already, it's written, it's going to happen. You can't avoid it. It's fate. It's destiny. Well, the Magi had a way of reading the stars and being able to forecast and foretell events. Uh, catastrophes, blessings, good omens, bad omens. And the Jews get into this story 
because of their disobedience. And in 597 B.C., the story I just told, the end of the Old Testament, 590 B.C., Babylon invades, takes Daniel and the three children and a whole lot more people captive. And over there in captivity, then the story picks up. You get the story of Esther. You get the story of Daniel. You get the story of Nehemiah. You get Zerubbabel and, and Ezra and Nehemiah leaving, leading three waves back uh, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem. The, the reason the Jews get connected to the Magi is because in 597 they went to captivity in the Babylonian Empire. When they went into the captivity in the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar looked at all the slaves and said, which of you are the sons of the princes and the royalty? Step over here. And then he said to the royal castrator, I want you to fix all of these men so they can't reproduce. And now I want to take them into the palace and we're going to enroll them in Magi U, class of 595 B.C. And so Daniel got him a Magi U, purple sweatshirt, and he enrolled in the university. And Nebuchadnezzar said, the brightest and the best, SATM, and uh, I want to know who the brightest and the best are. We're going to put them in accelerated studies. They're going to be Magi. They're going to be advisors to kings. And they have to be able to do language. They have to be able to do no law. It's like law school, language school, everything accelerated. And of course, God bless those who are faithful to him. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and people like this are being promoted up through the kingdom. And through a twist of fate, there is a crisis in the kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 2, God blesses Daniel with the ability to interpret a dream. He's Magi. And the king comes to the Magi and says, I've had a dream and I want somebody to interpret it. Daniel 2. And in a big plot twist, rather than killing the Magi, Daniel saves all of the Magi's lives. Because he interprets the dream and tells the king, don't hurt my co-workers. And all the Magi, how do you think they felt towards Daniel? Elated. Thankful. Grateful. And so they elected him as the president of the Magi. He's now the head of the Magi. Now some jealousy will develop here and there. And God will take care of that along the way in the story. But through a big twist of, of plot, Daniel becomes the head, a Jew of the line of kings, becomes the head of the Magi in Babylon to advise the kings. And when Daniel became Magi, the Magi president, Daniel did something very amazing for us and for all of history. So who exactly are the Magi? The Magi are the power behind the power. Now this you'll get because this is true in America. These Magi were the power behind the power. They were incredibly brilliant, UN language skills, incredible Roman oratory and political skills. They could divinate the future and they advised the kings. That's who the Magi are. They are the power behind the power. The kings are often portrayed in the Bible and throughout history as bumbling boobs. Bunch of fools. They, 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 they can't figure out anything. Several of the kings of Persia are just pictured as bumbling idiots. And uh, you say, well, then how do these people conquer nations? I don't know. You tell me. You live in America. How does it happen? 
How can you elect someone? Now, whether you're Democrat or Republican, I'm just saying you got a president who can't complete a sentence right now. How, how does this happen? This is the power of America? No, this is not the power of America. The power is behind the power. And right now, you know in your own culture that there are a group of powerful people that are telling the guy what to say, what to do, where to be, where to stand, who to call on, what question to ask, whose hand to shake, and when to go to bed. You do get that, right? We're all on the same page there. Now, whether you're Democrat or Republican, I'm just saying it's obvious that's the system we've got right now. What I want to say to you is it's not been that different historically. The Magi are the power behind the power. Right now in America, we don't know who's pulling the levers. We don't know who the powerful people are behind the man and the woman. We just know there have to be powerful people calling the shots. We don't know who they are. In the case of the ancient kingdoms, there's a little more transparency here. In the ancient kingdoms, we know who they are. They're the magi. (laughs) The magi are the power behind the power. When the king's going to make a decision, he calls Daniel and these guys in and says, what do we do? When you've got a bumbling fool on the throne like, uh, uh, how about Belshazzar? He's in there having the big orgy with all of his lords, remember? And God's hand writes on the wall and the king, uh, you know, uh, 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 melts down. And the grandmother or the mother, royal mother says, well, what are you all going to do about this? And everybody's like, we, nobody knows anything. The kingdom's just in chaos. Nobody knows anything. We don't know what to do about that. There's an army outside the gates. We, we're, we're, we don't know what to do. The, the kingdom has no leadership. You know what the queen mother said? Oh, well, haven't you called Daniel? And they're like, that old guy, is he still alive? And she's like, yeah, he's living up in the royal apartments for the last 20 years. Nobody's even asked his opinion. This is the smartest guy in the whole kingdom. You better get the Magi down here. And an old woman, the queen mother, summons Daniel to come down to the the big banquet hall of Belshazzar. And Daniel looks like the writing on the wall and says, yeah, mm, mm, it ain't going to be pretty. You'll be dead tonight, king. The kingdom's over. It's numbered. It's weighed in the balances. You've been found wanting kaput tonight. Tonight, a new, a new world empire is born tonight, and you have killed the Babylonian empire. God has judged you, the enemies at the gates. And Daniel was right, and the next king of another whole other country pulled Daniel in as a royal advisor to him also. He recognized that the Magi were wise. Okay, so now that's who the Magi are. They're the power behind the power. Let me say it another way. They're the kingmakers. They're the kingmakers. You couldn't be an eastern king without their help. There's no way you know how to rule. You rule over people that speak 50 different languages from all these provinces with different gods and cultures and custom. No, you have to have the magi to rule an empire. You have to have the magi to know all the different laws. You think the king memorized all the laws? He didn't go to magi you. They went to magi you. And so the Magi were the king makers. We have something in America. It's not the same, but I'll use it as an illustration. We have a group of people in America that nobody really knows who they are. I bet you couldn't tell me one name when I tell you who the group is. And it's a group that plays an incredibly powerful part of our culture. They're called the Electoral College. You realize the Electoral College elects the president. Does anybody know their names? You might know where they live. If you ran into an elector at TJ Maxx, would you know them? No. 
You say, well, who are they? Well, they're these powerful people who represent a delegation of people who cast a vote to elect the president of the United States. They're electors. Okay, it's not the same, but get this. Until the electors cast their vote and the votes are, are certified, th- then there is no official president. Their vote has to be cast in favor for there to be a president. Does that make sense? You have to be elected by the Electoral College in order to be the President of the United States. Is that fair? All right, we all agree. The Magi have to certify you before you can be an Eastern King. Do you know why Matthew's put them in the story now? They're not decoration. They're not just trimmings like the camel and the donkey for a nativity scene. I mean, nativity scene's too bare. We need to invent some more people. How about three kings? How about some trick? It's not like that. Matthew's telling you a real true story and he's woven in the Magi because the Magi are the kingmakers. You cannot rule without their approval. You cannot be recognized without their certification. And you say, well, how in the world do they get from 597 B.C. all the way to the birth of Christ? How do 600 years, five, more than 500 years, those Magi span the story to Jesus Christ from Babylon? You say, how did they get there? I'll tell you how they got there. Because a man made disciples at work. And his name was Daniel. And when he became the president of the Magi, he taught them, you people are the kingmakers. Do you realize that God has given you one of the biggest roles in history? Because one day God's going to send a king and he's going to fix this mess. And it's not going to be any king. It's going to be a Persian king. It's not going to be a Babylonian king. It's going to be the king from heaven. And he's going to set up the kingdom of heaven. He's going to be God's king to establish rule as it was in the beginning. He'll be human, but he'll be king of the world. And he'll be God's king. And God's going to want you, Magi, when God's king comes, he's going to want you kingmakers to come and bow the knee before him and certify him as the son of God, God's king on earth. It didn't happen in the first year or the second year or the tenth year or the hundredth year or the two hundredth year or the three hundredth year or the four hundredth year. But five hundred years later, those Magi had been discipling their children And they had been believing in God. And they had been looking for God's king. Let me just say this to you. When God's king shows up in Israel, the Jews aren't looking for him. The religious leaders don't care. But a group of people from Babylon called the Magi are part of the heroes of the story. The kingmakers are showing up from the... Listen, the Magi... When you hear about the great world empires of Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, when you watch movies like 300 and all of these ancient movies about men who ruled the world, every one of those stories, those men were backed by the Magi. Every one of them. And so it only makes sense if you're going to tell the story of a king When you're coming out of that era that you say, and now the Magi are about to make their final appearance on the stage of history. And they're going to go out with a bang. How would you like your final official act to be this? We have certified the last king. You say, why do they go off the stage? Because there ain't any more kings coming. God's king has made an arrival. 
and the Magi have come to certify him. Now, for sake of time, I can't tell you the story, but let me just, you guys don't put any verses up. Let me just say what I want to say, and you guys bear with me to the end now. I want to, I want to bring it to a conclusion. The Magi ride into Jerusalem, and they say to King Herod, who's peeking out his window, he sees the Magi roar into the city of Jerusalem. They don't ride camels, and there are not three of them. There is a whole delegation of them. They do not come alone. They come surrounded by Persian cavalry, armed. They are not riding camels. They are on horses, Arabian horses, decorated with all kinds of paraphernalia. Uh, they wear conical hats, the Magi, and, and robes of royalty. So when they ride in, it's like a presidential, you know, the limousines and the police and the motorcycles, that's what it would have looked like. They ride into Jerusalem, Herod throws open the curtains and says, what's the hoofbeats outside and what's the sirens? And you see this royal delegation with UN flags and you see the kingmakers riding in. You yourself are an old, old, decrepit, angry, bitter, uh, nutso, psycho, murderous king on your last breath almost. And you see the UN delegation ride in with the Magi and, and, and you say, oh, this can't be good. And so what the Bible says is when they, King Herod received them, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. The Magi come into the palace and King Herod says, What's up, boys? And they say, where is he? And Herod said, what, what were you talking about? The Magi say, where is he? Here's their exact words. Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. We've been watching for 500 years. Passed down through ancient manuscripts. Passed down by our parents and our grandparents. Passed down by Daniel himself. That one day God would send a king to set this planet right. And establish the rule of heaven on earth. And reunite heaven and earth. We are, we've been looking for the kingdom of God. The stars in the sky say it's happened. It's happened right now. And where is he that is born king of the Jews? Well that was Herod's title that was given to him by Rome, not by God. He's not even Jewish. He's nuts. And now, listen, he murdered his own kids. He murdered his wife. He was so paranoid about somebody getting the throne. He calls, leaves the UN delegation. He calls together the Pharisees and the religious people privately. And he says, there's a UN delegation out there of the Magi. And they say there's a new king in town. I don't know what they're talking about. You're my brain trust. What do the scriptures, what do our ancient books handed down from our fathers say? What do our prophecies say? And the Jewish prophets, uh, the Jewish advisors said this. They said, well, there is a passage in the Old Testament. It says, but thou Bethlehem in Judea, though thou be the least among the princes, out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So if a king was going to be born, probably be in Bethlehem. Now, Matthew is incredibly delinquent on detail here. And maybe because there is no detail to give. They knew where Christ, where God's king should be born. It's only like 10 minutes away and nobody goes to see if it's happened. They don't care. They've got a nice religious system. Everybody's comfortable. We have a temple. Don't rock the boat. The Magi are out here in the front hall. Herod walks back out and engages them and says, Okay, it looks like Bethlehem is the place. And by now the Magi figure out that Herod's insane. And the Magi are trying to figure out how to distance themselves from the crazy king. The crazy king says to the Magi, 
my advisors tell me Bethlehem. It's that road right there. You'll be there in 10 minutes. No big deal. I'll tell you what. Go and find the new king. We'd love to celebrate this with you if it's really happened. Go and find the king. And when you have found him, bring me word. If you'll just drop me a pen and, and send it over by email. I'll have my people come right down there and recognize the new king as well. As soon as the Magi mount their horses and the cavalry rides away, Herod calls the executioners together. He's insane. And he says to the executioners, get your swords and get your axes. And I want you to wait ten minutes and let these guys get down the road. And as soon as they text me the address, I want you to go through Bethlehem and just go through the whole neighborhood And I want you to kill every child two years old and under. Can you imagine being assigned that job? You say, well, if you're military, you have to follow orders. This is where you don't. When they say to you, go into the village and massacre the women and children. This is one of those moments you'd read about in a book. In a thriller where you would say, gosh, don't obey the order. Don't obey the order. You can't. This is not right. These people are crazy that are giving you the orders. Herod says, go into Bethlehem and massacre every child under two years old. And we'll know we just get them all. You don't have to get the right one. Just get them all. The Magi ride away and the Magi are looking at each other like, does they all think that guy's crazy? And they're like, yeah, he's crazy. And they're like, we're not going back through Jerusalem on the way home. We'll find another way out of this country. That guy's nuts. There's no telling what he might do. He's nuts. Well, here's how the story goes. The star which they saw in the east appears to them again on the ride. And it goes and hovers over the house where the young child, not baby in a manger, house where the young child is. And the Magi, can you imagine being in sleepy old Shepherdville? And the presidential entourage starts pulling up the street. Can you imagine the whole little hamlet's going to turn out and say, what in the what is going on in the little sleepy town of Bethlehem? Here comes the Magi thundering into town. And when they thunder into town, well, Matthew tells us something special. Let me read it for you. On coming to the house, Matthew 2.11, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down And they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And when the kingmakers bowed before Jesus at two years old-ish, toddler Jesus, when they bowed the knee before Jesus, The King of Kings is now certified by the Electoral College. The wise men, the Magi are in the story because Matthew's telling you the story of how God became King. Not necessarily how Jesus died on the cross, how God became King. So he starts with a king's genealogy and a king's birth order and a king's family. And he quickly brings the Magi, the kingmakers, into the story and has the kingmakers bow in a little hut in Bethlehem before a two-year-old Jesus Christ and sign the papers and stamp the seal and say the words and take the oath and place your hand. And they gave him treasures and they said, 
the Magi of the East, without no whom, without, without our consent, no king can rule, have now certified you as God's king, the king of the Jews. That's the story Matthew's telling you. Now I want to challenge you. I'm done. I want to challenge you this morning. What do you do with a story like that? You say, well, Pastor, we don't have any big treasures. I mean, I wish I had a treasure chest of gold, you know, to give to, give to God's service, to give to make disciples, to give to missions, to, to help. Okay, we don't have big treasures. You are correct. But we have small treasures. And the reason a church is so powerful is you take your small treasure and connect it to my small treasure and connect it to your small treasure. And suddenly we got a pretty good little amount to work with to do something significant for God. Uh, teamwork, collaboration is what makes it work. You say, well, I don't have too much talent. Yeah, but you take your talent you're willing to give and the talent I'm willing to give and the talent you're willing to give and the talent you're willing to give. Start pulling those talents together and suddenly you have a whole functioning church that can pray with people and make food for people and minister to people and serve people and lead people to Christ and disciple people and lead worship. Sir. Suddenly now it's a functioning body of Christ where everybody is doing their part for the kingdom of God. I think Matthew has included this also so that you would understand at the beginning of the story that if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, you, you, you can't get into a kingdom by rejecting a king, that's for sure. If you want to get into the kingdom, you have to receive the king. And he's not just someone who died. He's king. He's God's king that he has sent to make things right. Dying is going to be a part of it. But it's only a small part. Rising is a bigger part than that. We'll talk about that later in the year. God has sent his king. So I want to say this to you. If you've never received God's king as your king, if you've never called upon Jesus Christ and said, I bend my knee to you, you're the Lord of my life, you're 100% in charge, forgive me and restore me into a relationship with God. If you've never done that, I want to challenge you to do that this morning. There will be people here who can help you. You just slip out of your seat, take somebody's hand, and just say, hey, pray with me. I need to, I need to receive Christ as my Savior. They'll know 100% how to help you in this invitation. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. It's a little easier to move about when we're standing. Having spoken now to those who haven't received Christ, I want to speak to every Christian in the room for just a moment. First Sunday of a new year. Uh, you know, these wise men had treasures. We, we don't have big treasures. These wise men went on a pilgrimage across the east. Middle East to find the babe and the child in Bethlehem. I'm not saying to you this morning that the Bible says you need to go on a pilgrimage to find yourself. You don't need to go on a pilgrimage. God is here, right here this morning, right here present in this room where God's people have assembled. God is present in a very special way. You don't have to go and find Him. That's what I'm saying. He's here. All you need to do is bow down and worship Him. They had to seek. This morning, He's here. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. 
You all together, Paul said in Corinthians, are the temple of God. He is here. You don't need to seek and you don't need to go on a journey. You just need to worship. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. What I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to dedicate your treasure to God's kingdom. When the Magi opened their treasures, they were saying, God, we dedicate this to you. We give it to you. Maybe you have never tithed before. Maybe you've never gone beyond the tithe before. The tithe is just really the starting point, not, not the goal. Maybe you've never given to missions. Maybe, maybe you've never taken your wealth, your treasure, and put it to work in the kingdom of God. Number one, I'm going to ask you this morning to make 23 different and say to God, God, I want not only to give to you, I want you to bless me. And I want to say to you, God, God can't bless you the way he wants to bless you if you won't be diligent in giving back to him. And if you'll be faithful, he will take care of you. I want you to settle that with God this morning. And I want you to say, even if you're the best giver the church has ever seen, I want you to say, God, this is what I'm going to do this year when it comes to giving my treasure to you. The second thing I want you to do this morning is I want you to bow and worship Jesus. Those are the two things the Magi did. They got into the story of the Bible. They got in the story of Jesus by doing those two things. Gave their treasure. They bowed and worshiped before God. This morning, I'd like you to consider finding a place on your knees in the next few minutes and calling Jesus your king and saying to him, I dedicate my life to you. All I am is yours. All I have is yours. I acknowledge you as the king of my life. I recognize this morning you're officially in charge. You're the Lord of my life. And all that I am and all that I have is ready. It's, it is now ready to be mobilized for the kingdom of God. That's what the wise men did. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. I know all of you would like to be financially blessed. You'd like to see 23 be a big increase for you. Let's open up the path for that. By you making a financial commitment to God. You have to give him a number. Just say, Lord, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be one of those faithful families that you can count on. Faithful in worship. Faithful in giving. Faithful in the mission. you need someone to pray with you, I'm going to ask you just to come. There are people here that will pray with you. Something heavy on your heart. You need some comfort, some encouragement. A lot of prayer partners here ready to help you this morning. If you need to receive Christ, you just come and take someone's hand and let them know how to pray with you. Father, this morning we bow before you. Lord, thank you for this family of families. Lord, we are all centered together as we think about the story of the Magi and how they're important to the story you want us to know. 
Lord, this morning we call you king. Absolutely in charge, Lord, sovereign of our lives. And Lord, on this first Sunday of the year, we want to rededicate our wealth to you. Lord, we're going to do our very best to be faithful in giving. And God, we want you to open the windows of heaven and pour down on us an increase. Lord, increase our capacity to give. Lord, bless us with abundance that we can give in abundance. God, we think about so many disciples we need to help take care of around the world. God, I pray that you would open a way through our lives to bless their lives. God, our goal is not just to be blessed. Our goal is to be a blessing to others like you did for Abraham. Lord, do for us. God, this morning we rededicate our lives to you. We dedicate this year to you. Lord, may this be the year we lead someone to Christ. Lord, may this be the year that we're able to disciple someone to transformation and maturity and see one of our disciples launch their own discipleship group. God, may this be the year that some of the relationships that are fragile are are bound up and healed in our lives. God, may this be the year of our promotion. Lord, may this be the year of our breakthrough. Lord, this will be the year that some will buy their first house. Lord, this will be the year that some will get married. This will be the year that some will have their child. God, thank you for the blessings that you have in store for us. And all that's going to happen, we dedicate it to you. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God's people said,